All right, so normally we will have someone read uh, previous, you know, like uh, someone who sings or someone will come up here and read. Um, But this week I was trying to be kind to uh, the readers uh, because of all those words. So that's why I read. But we're going to be in, you'll see why we read that in just a minute. Probably That's a little bit of a strange text. I'll show you in a little while. But if you have a Bible, make your way to 2 Kings chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one around you, a black hardback Bible. We're going to be on page 331 in that. If you don't own a good Bible or just take that one home, it's our gift to you. We've got plenty of them, so feel free to take that with you. But today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be finishing our series through the books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. And we've been at it for a while, 55 sermons covering 102 chapters Page-wise, this is over 10% of the Bible. So we are completing that. In terms of history, there's 400 years of redemptive history going on. So this is a huge you know, study that we're closing out and a huge period of, t- period of time in redemptive history that we're wrapping up. And as we come to a close in the last couple of chapters of these four books, the author does something a little bit interesting. And so uh, let me... Let me ask everyone to stand back up if you can, and let's play a game real quick. Just a quick little game. All right. So I don't think many people will sit down after I say this, but if you have never worn a Band-Aid, you can sit down. We did have a couple sit down. This is remarkable. All right. So everybody who's standing up, you've obviously worn a Band-Aid. And when you take that Band-Aid off, you know there's one of two ways you can do it, right? You can take it off slowly and, you know, lessen the severity of the pain, but you're lengthening the, the time of agony. So you can go that way or you can just Rip it off in one swell swoop, and it's going to hurt like Dickens for just a second, but it's going to pass a little more quickly, okay? Those are the two ways. So I want to see what kind of people y'all are. So if you are a person who pulls it off slowly, trying to make sure it grabs as few hairs as possible, you can sit down. All right. So I'm learning what kind of people we have. This is good. For all of those, for, for you guys who are all still standing up, the author of Second Kings, the author of First and Second Kings, he's one of you. All right, you can be seated. The reason he's one of you is because as he comes to the end of this 400, y'all are still laughing about it. I've got to get your attention again. So that's fine. Everybody laugh. All right, now the reason. <laughs> that's right. The reason I say that he's one of you is because as he comes to the end of this 400, block, 400 years block of time, he really kind of speeds up. Like he could go slow and give us all the details of everything that happens with Babylon coming in and Nebuchadnezzar and all of that. He could give us all the details of that, how it came, 597, started everything, 586, wipes everything out, destroys everything. He could give us all the details of that, but he kind of hits fast forward a little bit because it's like he wants to just get it over with. He wants to rip it off real quick and he wants to get that over with and give kind of a tip of his hat to the faithfulness of God right at the end that's easy to miss. And so this morning, what I want to do, I'm going to, I'm going to high level summarize, even though he's going fast, these last two and a half chapters, just kind of give you a big overview because I want to try to help us as we're closing this out, see some of the 
connect some dots across all of the Bible and see the themes of this, everything that's happened and everything that's going on. Some of the things we've hit on before, but now that we're coming to the conclusion, see how it all fits together. And so just summary-wise, the last two chapters, really two and a half chapters, I guess, cover the last 22 years of the nation of Judah. All right, so you had, you had Samuel, he was a prophet, Saul, a king, bad king, got David, Solomon, kingdom split, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, northern kingdom winds up being taken out by the Assyrians, southern kingdom, Judah, what we're studying is going to be taken out by the Babylonians, by Nebuchadnezzar, all right? And what these last two and a half chapters cover the last 22 years. So this is after Josiah. So those of you who were here last week, we looked at Josiah. He repented. He made reforms. Th- those things happen. This is after that. 20, the last 22 years. And in those 22 years, we have four kings. Two of them served for 11 years. Two of them served for three months each. Four kings over these last couple of years. And... All four of these kings, it's said of them that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Which is like, you know, that song, Oh, it'll read the first time. Henry the eighth, I am. Henry, second verse, same as the first, right? That's like what's been going on this whole time through this whole. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. These last four did as well. And God's been warning about this for hundreds of years. If you keep doing this, if you don't repent, I will bring judgment. And so 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 20. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And very much Romans chapter 1. You want that? Fine. Have it your way. I will give you what you want. I'm done. And so like I said, starting in 597, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians come in, take over. 586, they come in, they utterly destroy everything. Like utterly destroy everything. The temple is torn down. It's ripped apart. It's burned. The treasures, the gold, all that's taken off. And even the people, except the poorest of the poor, are taken away They go to exile and they live in Babylon. You can read about that in the book of Daniel and other books in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament. And so this 400-year block of time that we've been studying comes to an end. Everything that we've talked about, Samuel, Saul, David, Solomon, broken kingdom, Elijah, Elisha's prophets, northern, southern, Assyrians take out the northern, Babylonians take out the southern. Like it all comes to an end. Everything falls apart. Judah goes into exile, into the book. And so you're probably saying, well, what's the point then? What's the whole point of these four books, 10% of the Bible, 400 years of redemptive history? What's the point? It just fell apart. I think there's two two points, right? One's very much an application for us, like in our lives, and one's kind of a thematic thing from the Bible that we need to understand and see. And when we believe and, 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 and take that in, makes a profound effect in our life, all right? So two of them. For starters, one of the things that this book teaches is they should have listened to and obey God's word, all right? So applying that to us, number one in your notes, listen to and obey God's word. This is simple. This is not, you know, some 
pretty simple. Listen to and obey God's word. And we hit on this a little bit last week when we talked about Josiah. But striving for an ever-increasing life of obedience to Christ is a mark of a disciple. Striving for an ever-increasing level of obedience is a mark of a disciple. We are to produce fruit. And listen, progress may be slow, but it's progress. Right? And there may be majorly bumps and falls along the way, but if you claim to be a believer, you should be making progress in some degree, some way, fashion, form, along a path of ever-increasing obedience to Christ. And if you're not, you should do some self-reflection. Am I really a believer in Christ? It doesn't change the way I live. So do I really believe it? Do, do I actually love Jesus? Because as Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so you can't say, Jesus, you're wrong. You're completely wrong. I'm not going to do that. And claim to be a follower of Christ. Now listen, you can slip and fall. You can't, praise the Lord, we can slip and fall, we can make mistakes, okay? Being a Christian is not about being sinless. But it is about being repentant. And it's under, very important that we understand the difference there. Because it's huge. The Christian faith is not a religion for people who do not sin. Because we all sin. But it very much is not a religion for people who do not repent. What's repent? Repent is the opposite of sin. Sin is where we turn from God and we turn to our sin. Repentance is where we turn from our sin and we turn to God. And we agree with God about what He says about our sin. We grieve it. We talked about this last week. We decide to leave it and we flee to Christ to cleanse it. That's what a Christian is. Okay, a Christian is not a self-righteous, sinless person. No, it's a messy, messy, messy person. Stumbling forward towards the light. And in humility, leaning hard into Christ because He's our only hope. That's what a Christian is. Stumbling forward. And ever increasing. Maybe slow. But there's progress in an ever-increasing obedience to God's Word. And where we fail, we repent. And we let Jesus, like a loving parent, we let Jesus pick us up, dust us off, and say, Go again, son. Go again, daughter. And as we saw last week, that's what Josiah did. Josiah found the book of the law. He read it. He realized... I and we are not living this way. He repented before the Lord and he began to live in obedience. And friends, if God is God, okay, if God is God, if he is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, all right, if he is the creator and we are his creations, then one, he deserves our obedience because he's God. And he gave us commandments because he's God and he can do that. 
And then number two, we display our love for him by our obedience. It's what Jesus said, unless Jesus is lying. And so we seek to live out his commandments. But then number three, and this is the one I think we forget sometimes, his commandments are for our joy. They're for our good. Because if he is creator, then he knows how creation works best. He designed it. He knows how it works best. Which means when God says sex is handled this way, money is handled this way, marriage is handled this way, that is not God trying to be like, I'm God, I'm going to give you some hard rules, and I'm going to have fun watching you struggle and be frustrated because I, I just want to do that. No, no, that's not God. God is a loving Father who knows how things work best, and He tells us that for our good. He's saying, trust me and let me lead you into joy. I'm not trying to keep it from you. But the issue is, so often we think that we're smarter than God. Or that the rules don't apply to us because we're a special circumstance that the omniscient, omnipotent God of the universe never happened to think about. I just, ah, it slipped his mind. And so the reality is that it's not God who's robbing us of joy. He's trying to lead us into it. Who robs us of joy? We do. Like you, you rob, no one has made a bigger mess of your life and robbed you of more joy than you have. No one's robbed me of more joy, made a bigger mess of my life than I have. We shake our heads in agreement and yet we still, we still think that we know better than God. We still live like Grandpa Adam and Grandma Eve. God is keeping something from me. If He would give me that, then I'd be happy. Then I'd have joy. But He says, I can't have that. But that's the very thing that would give me joy. That's the very thing. But no, it's like Adam and Eve. That's the very thing that will lead you to death. That's the very thing that would lead you to destruction. And God made the universe and he's trying to help you. He knows how it's supposed to work and he's a loving father. And so it's like, it's like uh, those of you who are mom and dad, okay? Like you with your kids, Sarah and I with our kids. My, Sarah, our goal in life is not to make our kids miserable. Our goal in life is not to rob them of joy. It's to lead them into it. But that means there are times when there are things that they can't do and there are attitudes that have to be changed because we're seeking their joy. And so, for example, no, you can't go get candy from the shady van with the blacked out windows. No, right? And depending upon age, I may not explain why. Sometimes God may not explain why in His Word. But He's still protecting you from the shady van with the blacked out windows. Right? 
Sometimes I'm going to say, no, you can't have unrestricted access to your phone and any app that I haven't researched and approved. No. Why? Because I love you. No, you can't take a blow dryer in the bathtub with you. Right? Because I, I, I want you to not die. I love you. We love you. Friends, this is, this is God with us. And so he's saying, trust me. And love me enough to obey me. Because I'm for you. And where we fail, listen, praise God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he took our sin upon himself and he suffered and died in our place for our sin as a substitute so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life. Okay, it's Jesus that makes us right with God, not our obedience. Make sure we understand that. Nevertheless, if we love Jesus, Jesus says we will seek to obey him for his glory and also for our joy. But Israel and Judah, they wouldn't. Across hundreds of years, they refused. Though God pleaded with them. The, book, the books of Chronicles, they go from Abraham at the beginning of First Chronicles all the way to the same place at the end of Second Chronicles. And it's even a little bit shorter. It's a parallel account. So let me read to you just real quick out of Second Chronicles Chapter 36, two verses, listen to this. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to, the, to them by his messengers, prophets, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. It's the temple. But they kept mocking the messengers of God despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans, another word for Babylonians. He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. The people would not listen to or obey God's word. And destruction came. Let that be a lesson to us. Because as the Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in living lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And this takes us right into the second main point of these four books. That we need a better king. 
with a forever kingdom. And so number two in your notes, these books exist to show us that, number two, we need a better king with a forever kingdom. And as it says here, where righteousness dwells. We need a better king with a forever kingdom. And so across the Bible, and this is where we're going to get thematic a little bit, across the Bible, the entire story of the Bible, there are, there are two rubrics that you can use as you seek to kind of interpret the Bible and understand the Bible. These are not two different ways of doing things. They're kind of two concurrent ways, but it's, it's kind of like two lenses by which to understand the total story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. All right, one of those, but all this, I'm about to say, if you've been here for any length of time, you've heard both of these. One of the rubrics by which to understand the grand story of the Bible is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Okay, like a four-act play. The Bible very much breaks down this way. Act one, creation. God creates a good world, a perfect world. Everything's great, wonderful. Very good. Act two. Man rebels against that. God, you're keeping something from me. I don't believe that you're... At, so I'm going to do this thing that you say I can't do because I don't trust that you're for me. So I am going to have this fruit. And in doing that, it fractures the universe. Death comes in. Disease comes in. Sin comes in. Natural disasters come in. Hatred comes in. The very good shalom is broken. That's act two. Act three takes up the bulk of the Bible. And that's redemption. That progressively is revealed to be in Christ based upon His life, death, resurrection. And then act four is the coming restoration where Christ will come again and He will make all the sad things come untrue. He will repair the shalom that was broken and it will be a return to Eden in a lot of ways. And everything will be perfect forevermore. New heavens, new earth, all of that. Restoration. So that's one way you can see and understand the grand story of the Bible. And you should. You should understand. Another way to also think through it is based upon a terminology that Jesus uses a lot that revolves around the kingdom of God. So you can think from Genesis to Revelation in terms of the kingdom and what God is doing as it relates to a kingdom. And the kingdom of God, again, I've talked about this before, very much revolves around three things. God's people, God's place, and God's rule and blessing. Kingdom of God is very much about God's people, God's place, and God's rule and blessing. And that's kind of what we've seen through these four books. We've seen God's people in God's place, promised land, under God's rule and blessing. We've gotten a little sneak peek of that. But don't you see how actually that theme is across the entire Bible. That's just a little picture of it. And so I'm going to walk you through these. The first place you see this idea of the kingdom, God's people, God's place, God's rule and blessing pop up is in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It's in Eden. This is where the pattern of the kingdom is established. And you've got God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's rule and blessing. Pattern of the kingdom is established, right? They rebel against that. They fracture that. It's broken. Sin enters the world. It's wreaking havoc. And then you come to Genesis chapter 12. 
And God shows up of His own volition to an Iraqi pagan named Abram, sovereignly chooses him and says to him, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And it's basically a promise to restore all that was broken in the fall. It's a promise to return God's people to God's place under God's rule and blessing. So Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land, God's place, that I will show you and I will make you a great nation, God's people, and I will bless, rule and blessing, you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now a picture out to Jesus. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you All the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so, hang on to that. Garden of Eden, God's people, God's place, God's rule and blessing. Broken, promised to be returned, restored. Abraham, God's people, God's place, God's rule and blessing. And then we get to these books that we've been in for some time now. And we get, so we've got the pattern of the kingdom. We've got the the promise of the kingdom being restored, pattern, promise, and then we get to these books we've been studying for so long and we have the foreshadowing of the kingdom. We have the foreshadowing of the kingdom with God's people, the consolidated people of Israel, in God's place, what we commonly call the promised land, under God's rule and blessing. But friends, this is not the finality. This is not the completion of God's promise in Genesis 12 to fix everything. The kingdom of David and Solomon are just temporary and imperfect foreshadowings of the forever and perfect kingdom that is to come. Okay, it's pointing forward to those things. And so, for example, Friday night, Sarah and I went and watched the movie Midway. Uh, It's great. And it was actually really, really like we watched a documentary before we went. And then we watched the movie and came back and watched another documentary. Or no, I think it was the same documentary. And it was... I mean, it was really well done as far as being, like, historically accurate. Great movie. and enjoyed it thoroughly. Amazing what those men uh, did there in that battle. But the planes that they primarily used, because uh, it's all aircraft carrier dive bombers, was a uh, Douglas SBD Dauntless. Okay, you can go, I looked it up, you can go on, on Amazon and buy a model, right? You can go on Amazon and buy yourself a model. And if you take that model and you, you know, take your time and you really work it and you get the stickers just right and the paint just right and you put everything together just, you can make that thing look really realistic. But it's still just a model, right? It's not the real thing. It's to point forward to something greater, the real Douglas SBD Dauntless. And in a similar way, the kingdoms under David and Solomon were just a shadow of the perfect kingdom that God will establish through Christ. It points beyond itself to Him. That's what God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 of establishing His throne forever is all about. Again, I'm trying to help us connect some big themes it's not about Solomon, the promise of having a forever kingdom. It's, not about, it's a promise about Jesus. It's all about God's people, God's place, under God's rule and blessing. Listen to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I will make for you a great name. This is God speaking 
to David. And I will make for you a great name, like the names of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. This is not that moment. This is looking way forward into the future. With little fulfillments here or there, but looking way forward. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Skipping down. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That about Jesus, is what this foreshadowing of the kingdom is all about. It's not about the model. And so God's not ever going to rebuild the model again. But He will establish the real thing in and through Jesus. And so just keep tracing down. In Eden, you've got the kingdom patterned. In Abraham, you've got the kingdom promised. In David and Solomon, you've got the kingdom foreshadowed. When Jesus shows up, you've got the kingdom of God at hand because he is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And when he returns, the restoration that we spoke of will have the kingdom consummated. And we'll have the finality of God's people, all believers of all time, in God's place. Not just a little sliver of land in the Middle East, but new heavens and new earth. Hebrews eleven thirteen, Under God's rule and blessing, He will dwell with His people and He will be our God and He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Revelation 21. That's the ultimate fulfillment. That's what the kingdom's looking forward to. All of these things are finding their ultimate fulfillment there. That's what the Bible is all about. And specifically, that's what 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings are all about. They are crying out to us that we need a better king with a forever kingdom. And we need a king that could keep the law perfectly, that would rule his people peaceably, and would lead his people to green pastures and still waters. And we have that king, and his name is Jesus, and he's the king of kings. The king who has come and he's inaugurated his kingdom through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and he will come again and bring the finality of it all, Genesis 12, finally, fully fulfilled. Kingdom consummated and for all time, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing forever. And friends, that's even what the end of 2 Kings tips its hat at. And so look at the very end with me. 2 Chronicles, sorry, 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 27 through 30.
And in the 37, I'm sorry, and in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. Because Babylon took over a lot of kingdoms, so there were a lot of kings living there in prison. Or are vassals and are not in prison. Verse 29, So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments. And every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, according to his daily needs, as long as he lived. Friends, I think this is a little bit more than just kind of a little footnote about Jehoiakim, how he got an allowance. I think what the author is doing here is showing us that the royal line of David, that forever king who's going to come from his line, is still intact. Twice he calls out that Jehoiakim is the king of Judah. He's making a point. This guy is the king of Judah. It hasn't been broken. God is preserving the line of David to establish his throne forever. That promise of the, all capital, king coming from his line. And so while Jehoiakim may have been the last king in 2 Kings, he was not the last king of Judah. Not at all. Because God never breaks a promise or fails to fulfill His Word. And so when we go to that long genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, and we pick it up in verse 7, tracing everything that we've done, and they skip a few, but the, the highlights, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, two weeks ago, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, who we talked about last week, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Jeconiah is just another way of saying Jehoiakim. This is the same guy. That the author of 2 Kings is talking about, you know, dining at Nebuchadnezzar's table. The, the, the point here is the royal line of David has not been broken. It ran right through this guy, if you want to keep going, down through Shealtiel, all the way down to the end. Nathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And so see what's happening here. In the full biblical context, this genealogy is one of the most exciting things that's ever been written. Because it's showing us that God has kept His promise, that He is bringing that King that we need. Nothing can derail that. Not a deportation, not a destruction of a land. Nothing can do that. And He is bringing Him. God's promise to David has not failed. Even though... Jehoiakim was carried off to Babylon. Jerusalem fell. The line of ancient kings continued all the way through to Jesus Christ. And so in a lot of ways, 
there chapter 25 is not the end of the book of Kings. Now, yep, we've got the books of First and Second Kings. But when Jesus shows up, born of the Virgin Mary, that's like the sequel. That's like Third Kings. And then when Jesus comes again someday and restores everything, that's like Fourth Kings. And that's a book that we're still waiting to read and that we all get to be a part of. And until that day comes, until Jesus cracks the sky and our hope and our joy is complete, until then, by the grace of God, we're not blinded by our sin and we don't live in the land of spiritual exile. No, we are already safe in the city of God under the strong protection of David's royal son, our Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Long live the King. He's on His throne. He'll come again. God's Word can't be thwarted. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are true to your word. Thank you that you are true to yourself. You've never lost a battle. You've never told a lie. You've never been false. And you can't. Any of those things. Because of who you are, your greatness, your justice, your glory, your majesty, your kindness. And so, Father, as we see, even in the midst of kingdoms falling, we see your purposes still being accomplished. Father, invigorate our hearts that our lives are part of something so much bigger than the little pieces that we can see. We think it's a big deal when we look at hundreds, a couple hundred years. But a thousand years is like a day to you, a day to you is like a thousand years. You play the long game. Help us, Father. Strengthen our faith. To see, with, to see with eyes of faith. And focus and keep our focus on the main things. And we've got things we've got to handle. We've got in our daily lives, all, all these things. But we're, we're part of something so much bigger. And it's something that cannot be derailed, is kept in heaven by you. It is our hope. And it will be fulfilled. Because you can't fail. Strengthen us. In Christ's name, amen.